Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. May I add today, I want to teach you about this greeting that I do, because it's always interesting uh, what it's all about. Some think, oh, you're just being funny. No, actually, it's um, Martin Luther had a famous slogan. The slogan is, Simul Justus et Peccator. All right, so it's going to go up here on the screen. Yeah, okay, there we go. And uh, simul is where we get our word simultaneous from. Eustace is uh, righteousness, righteous, or justice, or just, I should say. Et, the word and, and peccator is sinners. And so basically, theologically speaking, simultaneously as believers, what Luther was teaching is that we are simultaneously sinner and saint. You're, are you tracking with me? This is, this is theology I'm trying to bring across. So we're 100% of both all the time. And so as believers, um, uh, at the same time, we, we're totally sinners. We're totally righteous in, in, in Christ. And what he went on to do is to go on to try to help comfort people, especially those who truly struggle with their wishes to be free from sin. But they're aware of the struggle within and uh, to take it even further on your own time, you begin to read Romans chapter 7, which is the key biblical passage for understanding this whole doctrine. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And why don't I do the things I should? Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Yeah, you got it. Now we're even. There we go. We got it. Awesome. Let's pray. God, we want you to be present as you always are and to be aware of you in new ways. We want you to speak to us and to challenge us. So show us things this morning that need your healing touch in our lives. And as we leave this place, may we know that uh, we are in process, but you are in the process of restoring us. May we be focused without distraction as you speak into our souls. May we hear your voice this morning. My prayer is that you'd make this passage clear, that we would see our story in this story and in these big ideas, we need to find out and find our healing and hope because we know that you will be with us and you always are. Amen. I love the fact that as we begin to read the Bible and walk through the Bible, that we see that Jesus was just a, was, was a friend of the social outcast. We see that uh, exemplified all the time. He was a friend of the ostracized. He was a, a friend of the un, underprivileged. He was there for people. He befriended the common person. He befriended the slaves. He, did the, he befriended the poor. He befriended the women. And he befriended children. And we pick it up in Matthew chapter 19 as we walk through the, this passage for the next month. And the, it says, the people brought the little children to Jesus to place, and, uh, the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. Now, what we're seeing here is actually a traditional rabbinic blessing. There is some feedback that's, like, am I the only one hearing it? No? Um, th this was a traditional rabbinic blessing for children. What was taking place had nothing to do with any of their salvation, right? But uh, we read that the di disciples, they again step in, they get a little bit uptight, and they begin to rebuke them. And uh, we're not sure why they did this. We're not sure if the kids were a nuisance, right? 
Uh, or uh, did they think that the children were incapable of significantly uh, being reached by Jesus? We're not sure uh, what they were thinking. Maybe they were, you know, there was an area of superstitiousness, you know, how, Jesus, how can you, how can you ask Jesus to bless your kid, a kid that's incapable of faith? We're not quite sure what their reasoning was, but we know that they were a little bit uptight. And Jesus responds to them. Now, again, remember in the previous passage, they spoke out of turn. Jesus responds to them. Disciples now get involved again. Jesus responds to them. It's a constant teaching time for them. And he says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So Jesus was emphatic in his desire to be available to all, especially kids. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And what Jesus means, of course, is um, it's not that the kingdom of heaven is made up of children, but the kingdom of heaven is made up of people, all right, with the kind of humility and this unencumbered trust-like faith. And so Jesus is looking at these children, and he's actually setting things up. But he sees them in the, this kind of humility. And, and according to Jesus, the dependent, unable, helpless, passive, and weak, things that are really contrary to our culture, are the real citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't only save adults. He also saves dependent children and all of those whom we may think are incapable of having faith like the mentally challenged and the like. It adds a whole new dimension when we start looking at what Jesus is doing here. And scripture goes on and says, when he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, I, I, I want a brief takeaway on this passage because we're going to focus on the second half. But Jesus sees the importance of children. Our society's changing. But not only does Jesus see the importance of children, parents also see the importance of bringing their kids to Jesus. That's what we see here in the scriptures. Even if the kids don't really understand everything that is happening. Now, if you've ever been a parent and you ever wanted your kid to go and see, let's go see Santa, how you know, well do they embrace that opportunity. Well, just, just sit on the guy's lap. Quick, take the picture. How many times are we yelling at our kids? Just look at the camera, right? So it's interesting, not that Jesus is Santa. I'm not making the correlation. Don't put me out there, okay? But the, the idea is, you know, here parents are bringing their children to, and maybe the kids don't really understand everything that's happening, but the touch of the blessing and the prayer itself is incredibly important. So Jesus doesn't only receive those who voluntarily come to him, but also those who may not be old enough to realize how much they need his grace. Pause and think about that for a second. Because last week we saw Jesus defending the rights of the married and the single, and now he defends the rights of the children. And, and let's remember this, because I think this is actually very profound, because we read over it and we don't even think about it. Uh, when Jesus lays his hands on anyone and prays for anyone, something happens. So imagine, 
these children are coming to Jesus, probably some kicking and screaming. Some will, of course, just run and envelop him, and he lays his hands. And this is Jesus, the Son of God, lays his hands on them, and he blesses them, and he prays for them. Something happens. We don't take the time to ponder scripture. We don't take the time to look on what's going on here. And what Jesus does here is he gives children what they need the most. He gives them time. He gives them touch. And he gives them prayer. Now, children aren't marginal to Jesus, obviously, from this passage. The disciples thought that, but not Jesus. Jesus teaches us that the children need and deserve time. They need to be embraced, and they need prayer or prayers. Do I get an amen? Do I get an agreement? Like, do I get even an Aha, uh-huh, I never even knew what this was saying. And really, when you look at this, now that falls on the parents. It falls on the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, the caregivers, all those of us who love kids. There's a responsibility. And so parents, I, I said it earlier, it's important for you to fight and get your kids to church on, on a Sunday when we gather together, even when it's minus 30. I give you kudos. Thank you, because it's important. Living out our faith is important. They may not want to, for us to do it is so important. Take time with them at home, but also take time with them here at Seoul. Hug them, hold them while the worship is going on. Nothing is better than watching a parent being enveloped in worship and their kids totally out of control. But all of a sudden the kid will stop, come by mom or dad and model. May not have an understanding, but have modeling. This is so important. It's important that you take time, even during our prayer times, to pray over them, to hold them by them, both not just here at Seoul, but also at home. It's important that you, as parents, as grandparents, as caregivers, as aunts, as uncles, to model, model that faith, model the fact of us, the church, coming together regularly is a healthy part of our growing up, not just physically, but also socially and spiritually. And this is why at Seoul, we want our kids to be part of the worship experience. It's good that they're part of the music, the liturgy, the prayer time, the Lord's Supper, where you, the parent, have to talk and teach your kid about what this is all about. It's good for them to witness baptisms and dedications. It's good for them to even be at funerals. It's part of the life cycle. It's part of their cycle. And we need to be sensitive to the presence of kids at our gathering. And they need to feel welcomed. And they need to feel loved. Why? Because they're just kids. And the church should be the place that embraces them for who they are and what they're at. They are the next generation, right? We hear that all the time. They are the next generation of believers. It's up to us to bring them up and to teach them the values of spirituality and not let culture do that. Rant over. So parents, thanks for bringing your kids this morning. I think it's fabulous. And let's encourage others. If you know of people that aren't here, let's encourage one another. Let's put on some positive peer pressure and see what happens. Now, there's a shift in this passage that begins to take place between Jesus and, and what we know in the, for if you've grown up in church circles as what we would call the rich young ruler. Now, the Bible says this, is that... Uh, uh, just then a man came to Jesus. So the kids are all leaving and, and Jesus is going on his way. But then a guy comes up and asks Jesus, teacher, what good thing must I, uh, must I do to get eternal life? Now, 
The young man claims to be righteous, wanted to know what thing to do to guarantee eternal life. And Jesus responds to him. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, remember, the opposition to Jesus is, is uh, the opposition on the part of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, there's this component of people that oppose Jesus' ministry and his message. The Pharisees in particular are always angry. And they're angry because Jesus received sinner. He's, he ate with sinners. He drank with sinners. They were bugged at, about his teaching about money. It rubbed them the wrong way. They were bugged about his teaching about divorce and remarriage. It rubbed them the wrong way. And Jesus accuses them of seeking the approval of men and not God. And on the basis that you are living your life on strictly appearances rather than on the attitude of your hearts amongst other things. So there's this constant tension and the story behind the story here is that we need to remember that Jewish culture at this time, most of the Jewish religious folk viewed riches was a sign of God's favor on you. So if you had money, you were blessed by God. That was God's sign uh, of favor. You're blessed, man. You're going to heaven. Why? Because you got money. So here this young man, and, and again, as we know later on, it's a rich guy. He has it all. He's coming to Jesus. Young guy, has it all, comes to Jesus. And uh, what we do know is that he's drawn to Jesus. There's something about Jesus that, that's drawing. There's, there's something about what's going on. It's drawing to him. Unlike the Pharisees who opposed Jesus, he's drawn to him. And now we can look at this and go, well, this is a really nice story. But, you know, Jerry, I can't relate. I don't know where we're going to go with this. You know, I'm not rich. According to the rest of the world, people, I'll just say this. We are in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. Well, it's all relative. No, no, no. Just stop and think on that for a moment. How much water did you waste today? How many taps did you use in your house? When was the last? How much did you pay to fill your car with gas? Oh, don't get me going on that one. But, you know, how much did we do that? Are you hungry? Are you, start, are you wondering where your next meal is? Or are you choosing to pick what buffet you're going to or fast food restaurant you're going to? Right? You hear what I'm saying? We are the top 10 wealthiest. We, us. So when we put it into context, are we the rich young person? Just throwing it out there. So Jesus turns to this guy and he says, if you want to enter life, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Again, the culture that Jesus lived in believed that they could live forever in heaven with God because they were good enough. If they did the law, if they kept all of God's laws, they saw eternal life as a um, result of their religious performance. God gave the law, the, the Ten Commandments, to show people for the reason of, to show people that no matter how good they were, they could actually never measure up to God's perfect holiness. That's why the Ten Commandments there. The law was given so that people could see their need for a Savior, for a Deliverer. And in case you need a refresher of what the Ten Commandments are, don't have any other God before God. That is the first one. Or don't make yourself an idol. Or don't take the Lord's name in vain. Next slide, please. Uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your mother and your father. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not... 
basically lie and do not covet. Ten Commandments. Jesus says, keep the Ten Commandments. And, you know, the young man says, well, which one should I keep? Like, what do I do? He says, well, Jesus responds, well, you don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And then he adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't see that in the Ten Commandments, but Jesus sort of throws it in there. You notice that? And so Jesus lists the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth commandment, all from Exodus 20. He adds, love your neighbor, which is Exodus 19, Leviticus 19. And so I think it throws the, his listeners just for a little bit. Like, you know, Jesus is throwing more commands in there, and the reference to the Ten Commandments was clear. It's easy to understand. The inclusion of the Leviticus opens up a whole new world of discussion and obligation. And so this guy hears what Jesus is saying, and, and he's really quick to answer positively. Yeah, I've done all these things all my life. I've done this all my life, which I have to sit back and go, really? It seems incredible that anybody can claim, as this young man has, to have kept the commandments perfectly. But then he asks the question, but what do I lack? What do I lack? And this, to me, as we're looking at this, shows the restlessness of this man's heart. So even after keeping all the Mosaic laws and, the, in their, and their interpretations, he's the right religious person, but he comes to Jesus and he still feels empty. Isn't that interesting? What do I lack? There's an emptiness there. And in reality, as people heard these rules and then tried to live by them, as soon as they realized it was impossible to live by them all, you know, it's impossible for us as well. Never mind the, the Old Testament times and the New Testament times. It's impossible for us to live by them as well. The Bible says that if we've even broken one of God's laws, it's the same as breaking them all. James 2.10, suppose you keep the whole law but trip over just one part of it. Then you're guilty of breaking it all. And God's perf God is perfect and he's holy and his holiness cannot even tolerate a hint of sin. Sometimes I don't think that registers. And so I need a volunteer who would love to have a nice cold can of Coke. Are there any volunteers other than Evan? Other, uh, other, any other volunteers that would like a nice cold can. Okay, yeah, sure. I, I can't see who that is over there, but uh, there's some. Evan, I, I, you've won a few times. You, you may want to thank me later for this too. I don't, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. But you'll know there's two cans of Coke, right? Now, your name is, sir? Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Now, you like this nice cold can of Coke, right? Absolutely. I poured it in a nice clean glass for you, right? Okay, good. <laughs> you got to trust me on that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to drink this? Yeah, no, thank you. No, are you sure? No, no seriously. Why not? Because you just... I ruined the drink. Yeah. You, you think, eh? You want to take a look? Nasty. <laughs> Yeah. Think about it this way. You want to drink a nice cold can of Coke, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And just as about that you're going to take a nice big sip. 
somebody comes up to you and they said that they dropped the loogie in it, what happens? Do you drink that can? No. No. Much like this right here. Because even though I love Coke, and I'm presuming that you love Coke. There's a guy over there that likes Pepsi. When he saw the Coke, he was just freaking out. Like, that, that's sinful. That needs repentance. We're doing an altar call for you. So, uh, <laughs> um, even though I love Coke, I personally would never want to drink anything with any, anybody's spit. My concern in bringing you up, my friend, is that you would drink it regardless. That's why you didn't come up here. <laughs> Now, now the Coke is nice and it's pure, but it's spoiled, is it not? That's right. Right. So just as one drop of spit ruined the entire Coke, one sin breaks the perfect, re perfect relationship between God and his people. Do we understand what Jesus has put in the tray here? So God gave the Ten Commandments to show us that we're not good enough to be accepted in God's sight no matter what we do. We are sinners and we're in need of a Savior. And so most people would agree that they have sinned by doing, by doing something wrong or thinking wrong things. But few people admit, few of us will ever admit that we are helpless sinners. So many people think that they can do something. What, you know, what can we do to take care of our sin? But we have a wrong idea that we just can't do that. And it doesn't work that way. And, you know, is there more Coke in this cup or more of my spit? More Coke. There's more Coke, right? So why wouldn't you want to drink that as opposed to that? Nasty. <laughs> it's nasty, right? <laughs> it doesn't make it okay to drink, even though there's more Coke there. The tiny bit of spit or the loogie that I graciously put in there ruined the entire cup of Coke. And this Coke now is no longer pure. That one you know is, but this one is not. And that's the way it is with our lives. When we sin even one time, right, we are no longer pure like God is pure. Thank you. Enjoy your Coke. And God is pure Coke, just saying. <laughs> the Bible teaches that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. There are no good deeds that can undo the sin in the lives. You know, I could never take out enough of the spit molecules to have it back to that pure can of Coke. In fact, even the good things that we do are viewed as filthy rags by God. We see that in Isaiah. All of us have become like someone who is unclean. All the good things we do are like polluted rags to God. So God wants to save everybody from their sin, but only those who really understand that they're helpless to fix their own sin can be saved. And again, it's like the person must realize that this Coke is completely ruined and therefore we need a new Coke. So, Jesus says to this guy to get him to understand the principle. He goes on and he says, if you want to be perfect, well then go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come... And follow me. Take a closer look at the command of Jesus. Remember he said, what must I do to be saved? Here comes the command of Jesus. He tells him, if you want to be perfect, sell all you have and follow him. There's your command. You want, there's the answer to your question. And, you know, what, what do you want to do to find eternal life? There it is. There's the command. And the answer essentially was, look, it, you need to come by faith and follow Jesus. 
But since wealth was going to be a hindrance, he needed to go and sell everything he had. And Jesus is making it clear to the man. He's also making it clear to everybody else around who's listening that works are not good enough. While we all may not be required to take these words literally as Jesus is teaching, we all have to take what he's saying here seriously. Are you tracking with me on that? Uh, this, this shows the radical nature of the Christian faith. Our faith is one of commitment, total commitment. And for this man, the choice was in the area of possessions. What do I take? What do I hold on to? You know, the man's possessions possessed him, and he didn't want to surrender his life to the Lord, and he didn't want to radically change his priorities and practices. And this is not a requirement for all believers. Like, Jesus is not saying to all believers, we need to sell our stuff and follow him in that way. No. But what he's saying is, look at following me is a radical commitment. Are you prepared to count the cost? And so we as humans, we try our very best at achieving salvation by doing good things, Right? We're performance-based. We are. In everything we we're performance-based at work. We're performance-based at home. If I take out the garbage, I get a cookie. You know, things like that. Like, it's good. It's, we're performance-based. It helps my relationships. But every other religion in the world also tells you that there are certain things that you have to do to inherit or achieve eternal life. And most of all these other uh, religions will teach to truly, you know, do good things, and every time you do them, something good, you are on your step to heaven. This is what I got. I got to keep doing it this way, to keep doing it this way, and that's where we go. And sometimes even Christianity has modeled that, but there is nothing that can be done so that no one of us can boast, that none of us can actually take credit, and that's the difference between Christianity and other religions. It characterizes what somebody says, do versus done. It's already been done for us. Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's already been done for us. We don't have to do to earn our favor in religion with God. Jesus dying on the cross paid it all for us. So there's nothing that we can boast about in our works. And none of us can take any credit for just how good we are. It's all done through Jesus. We just got to put everything else aside and trust by faith and take that step. And so this young man was trying to come to Jesus as an adult, right? As it were, and, and not as a child. You know, Jesus is gracious and he's gently trying to show him, you know, uh, this way of approach is not possible. You know, doing stuff is not going to get you to heaven. And I believe that this guy had the wrong set of values. If he truly valued Jesus for who he was, he would have gladly given up everything he owned and obeyed Jesus and followed him. So now remember back to the section about kids. And what Jesus is saying is not that the kingdom of heaven is made up of little children, but the kingdom of heaven is made up of people like them, like-minded. That is, those who have childlike faith. Jesus sees them in the kind of humility, this unencumbered trust. He, that's what he's looking for in us as people. But in this young man, he doesn't find it. The Bible says that, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. That's how we knew he was rich. You know, another observation to the text and what Jesus is dealing with in Matthew is that when the Pharisees walked away from Jesus, they went away mad. <laughs> this guy walks away sad. So whether he was a Pharisee, a Sadducee, we don't know what kind of 
uh, Jewish camp he, religious camp he was part of. We do know, though, that he was faithful in trying to live out his faith according to the law. But he went away sad. Interesting that the Bible is silent on whether or not this guy ever made a decision. We don't know. And it's sort of shocking when we realize that when you look at the picture from the outside, you see that this person came with good motives. He had good motives. What, what must I do to just inherit eternal life, to guarantee that spot? He not only came with good motives, he came to the right person. He came with the right questions. And when you read the other stories in the other Gospels, we see that Jesus loved this guy. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus loved him. But this guy still went away. So wealth, position, and health are not always signs of God's favor. Especially in our Western culture. And then Jesus takes it up another notch with his disciples. He turns to them and he says, look, it, I, I tell you, it's hard for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. To which a lot of people go, ah. Now, he's not saying that no rich people are going to be saved. The Bible's filled with examples of wealthy people who have surrendered to the will of God. They remained wealthy, um, and they have a share in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not going to go there. It's filled. You can do your own Research, But in the days of Jesus, the people had come to the common understanding and the com to accept the teaching that the rich would automatically be in the kingdom. Primarily because their riches were seen as a very clear evidence that God was blessing on their life. Poverty was seen as a punishment for sin. Hence, people who were poor were called sinners. But Jesus here makes it clear, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Then he uses the illustration of a camel going through the eye of a needle. And there's been a lot of discussion over this phrase. Is it literal? Is it figurative? If you go to Israel, there will be some tour guides who will love to tell the tourists that the eye refers to the eye gate. And, you know, a camel, a person could barely squeeze through it. A camel couldn't get through it. A camel would have to kneel down and sort of shuffle to get through this eye gate. Uh, it was a sign of humility, all this other stuff. But there's no support for this view at all. I just need to throw that out there. There was never a single small gate in Jerusalem which camels had to kneel to enter. It's an exaggeration that Jesus is doing here. He's making this exaggeration so his listeners will understand. Remember, he's talking to his disciples. And he's trying to make a point, and he's addressing the situation of this young rich man, and he seemed to be blessed by God. He seemed to be blessed by God and God's favor in the Old Testament sense, but he was not right with God. And so in one way, when we look at riches and possessions, and we think, oh, these things are great, in another way, riches and possessions are actually a curse. Jesus wasn't first in this man's life. All his stuff was more important to him. All his stuff was blocking the way to his relationship with God. And people must understand the point of what Jesus is saying here. Having money is not the sin, right? Because we're in the top 10 wealthiest areas of the city, but loving money is the sin. And we do know that Jesus knows everybody's heart. He knew how much 
this young man loved his cash. Jesus knew that the young man trusted his money more than he trusted God. The man believed that no matter what problem would have come his way, he probably had enough money to help him through. If he got sick, he could buy the doctor. No problem. He can get the best doctors. If there was a shortage of food, no problem. He could pay more than anybody else to buy what was left. The man loved and trusted his money, but Jesus knew better. Jesus was honest with him, and Jesus confronted him about the thing that he valued the most. And Jesus knew that money doesn't last, and the excess, of, excess and love of it can lead us into sin. Because the fact of the matter, scriptures even say to us that people who love money want more and more and more and more of it. Even more importantly, Jesus knew that money couldn't buy things like peace or joy. And certainly it cannot buy a place in God's kingdom. So Jesus loved the man. So Jesus wanted what was best for him. Jesus wanted the guy to, in an act of faith to trust him and not money. God does satisfy us. Unlike money. God will never leave us. Money's always going out the window. And Jesus wasn't merely saying, get rid of your money. Jesus was telling this man that money was blocking his relationship to God. God wasn't number one in his life, and he should be. And we go back to the story, and we see when this young man first came to Jesus, he thought he was a pretty good guy. Right? He had all of his stuff together. He kept every one of God's rules. He was a good rule keeper. But when Jesus gives him another command to sell everything that he owned and give that money to who? Remember the, the, the commands that Jesus lit, gave him were all about his interaction with people? And love your neighbor as yourself, right? And he says, go give your money to the poor. I think that that was a realization that he had not kept every commandment. Because he didn't love God above other things. I think even the disciples are totally off, caught, uh, caught off guard by Jesus' words. Give it to the poor. Again, more relationship. People around you. You know, the disciples, they had like the Jewish folk around them. They viewed riches as a sign of God's favor. They're part of that culture. They understood that. And now Jesus is saying something very different. Jesus taught them that they got to be like a child to enter into the kingdom and that most of the rich would never make it. That's basically what they're hearing. And it just didn't make any sense to these bewildered disciples. And then they ask and they're looking at Jesus because they can't put it together. And they go, then who can be saved? And so we have an example of little children who have nothing to offer, who do not even have the will or the ability to approach God as an example as to how we enter the kingdom of God. And then we have the rich young man, the person who virtually has absolutely everything, and it's typical of those who don't enter the kingdom. And the disciples are confused. And ironically, the three things that this man possesses are the three things our culture values the most. We value youth. We value wealth, and we value power, right? How many in this room strive their hardest to look older? <laughs> Listen, when you're over 18, trust me, like you're done. Like, 
You know, we strive so hard to, to look young. My Kim Jong-un haircut. You know, whatever you want to call it. We do. I wear skinny jeans because I can. Lost 30 pounds. Jenny Craig is my friend. It's killing me. Just saying. Just throwing it out there. But, you know, we, we do. We try to look younger. We, what do we, our culture wants to take care of its bodies. We cl- eat clean, right? We, we try to portion control. We try to, you know, get enough sleep. We use different types of beautifying beauty aids. I've been using beard oil lately. Pretty interesting stuff, yeah? It makes a difference even on a little goatee. I couldn't believe it. It does. It's so soft. It's like a baby's, baby's bottom. See, our analogies of good go back to young. We value wealth. Without question, we value wealth. Right? We do. If we have money, we're going to spend it. We're going to use it. We're going to enjoy it. There's, and again, there's nothing wrong with that, but it is a number one value in our society. We value power. You know? Not only do we strive to look good all the time, we focus on our health, we focus on our strength, we're working out, we got a routine, some of us are jogging, some are still doing food shots on Instagram, it's all happening there. We value wealth because it affords us the ability to buy all the things that we think are beneficial to us. And finally, our, our culture, our culture really values power. Because if we have power, we can control the environment. And if I can control the environment, then the environment cannot control me. And yet these three things are really hindrances when you think about it to eternal life. This is what Jesus is talking about. When we're young, we foolishly believe that we have time in our favor. And we think very little about death when you're young. Because it is so distant. It is so remote. We think very little about eternity when we're young because the present is so inviting. The present is so promising. We live for the moment. We live for the day. That is until a doctor pulls you aside and says, look, you only have days, weeks, maybe months to live. Now, none of us ever think of that, but I sat. I sat in an emergency room this week. And I have permission to share this story. Every week for the last year, I've been wearing a giving key. Somebody thought it was my key for the church that I always keep forgetting. But no, it was called a giving key. It was given to me by my kids who uh, gave it to me as a Christmas gift over a year ago. Stamped with the word fearless. The whole purpose of the giving key was that you give it to somebody who needs that word. For a year, I carried this key around my neck. Just wanting to give it away, but just never feeling at peace until this week. I sat in an emergency room with a young person in their 20s who was literally given very little time by the doctor. Asked, you know, I helped her write her will. I asked her how she's doing. She goes, I'm afraid. This has the word fearless on it. Are you a believer and do you trust in Jesus? Yes. Okay, put this on. It means it's not a charm. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a reminder for you that when you're afraid, just hold on to it and be reminded that you're in the hands of Jesus. 
can happen to any of us. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not even guaranteed this afternoon. You're not guaranteed four o'clock. You know, our wealth seems to offer us all that we could want. And so, especially when we're young, we don't care less about God. And what we do is we relegate God to a distant second place at best. And we, we plan to call on him at some other time. I do, I plan, I plan to do that. Uh, maybe a less more comfortable time. And our power and our disposition deceive us into supposing that we have everything under control when we really don't. And I think what hit me the most profound is that even though this person wrote their will, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff in their will. All that this person wanted was once being cremated, who was going to get a portion of their ashes and where their ashes were going to go. Because now stuff meant nothing. And when it comes to eternity, it's those who think that they have the most going for them that actually have the greatest barriers in trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. And it's, it's not to say that those who are poor and those who are weak and those who have no position are a shoo-in to the kingdom of God. No, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And I love the fact that Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, which tells me then that there's hope for everyone. And the response Jesus makes clear that salvation is by the grace of God. In other words, God is a God who specializes in the impossible. And we see that in history. God is a God who specializes in the impossible. And salvation is impossible apart from the work of God. And if salvation is possible with God, then people, whether they're rich or poor, must seek it from God. And that requires complete self-surrender by faith to his will and his plan. And we're all in the same boat. And now Peter claimed that he and the disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. Like again, the disciples. You know, we've left everything. Now what's in it for us? Basically is what he says. And I think, again, his words are reflecting something of the age. I've done everything that deserves God's favor. I hear this all the time with Christians. I've done everything that God has done. How come he's not blessing me? That's what Peter's doing right here. And what does Jesus do? He kind of mildly rebukes Peter and he tells him that, look at you're missing the point, Peter. But he graciously told him of their inheritance in the kingdom will be far greater than what they might have earned. Right? It was by his grace though. And then he turns around and he begins to extend the promise of rewards to all who made the sacrifices to follow him. And, and it says, and everyone who had left the uh, has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake 
will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And he's referring to the cost of discipleship. Something I'm not sure our culture totally understands. Some people had to abandon family relationships when they chose Christ in the first century. And for them, there would be a full and abundant compensation in the kingdom. And this kind of sacrifice is often hard for us Westerners uh, to understand, especially in a country where people generally do not care what other people believe. But in the days of Jesus, when people left the traditions of the family, when they left the teachings of the Pharisees, and they begin to follow Jesus alone, it often meant a radical break with the family. It meant a break with the community. But that still does happen today in families and in cultures. We would see that if a believer, uh, somebody comes to faith in Jesus, in a Jewish family, they can be excommunicated. In a Muslim family, they can be excommunicated. In a Hindu family, they can be excommunicated. In an atheist family, they can be excommunicated. You're nuts. And Jesus is not saying that people need to abandon their little children and not fulfill their family responsibilities. He's declaring that to be his disciple has meant a radical change in the priorities of life. And if by following Jesus, someone has sacrificed a relationship with a family or a family member, that person will find in the Christian community a far greater family that truly cares for them in all things spiritual and practical, and that that person has also found eternal life. And so the language that Jesus has used here is figurative. Abandoning a father doesn't mean a hundred fathers will replace him, but there will be an abundant provision from God to compensate the loss. God brings people into our lives. And Jesus goes on, he begins to close this teachings with a proverbial saying. He says, many who are first will be last, many who are last will be first. And again, this saying is open to different interpretations, but in this context, the message has to do with who has a reward in the world to come. And so it's clear that eternal life, both the salvation and the life in the world to come, it's a work of grace. This is what Jesus is talking about. And the common notion that the rich, the powerful, the prominent of the day will advance into the kingdom beyond the poor, the weak, and the obscure is totally being denied. Jesus says we're all on a plain level. And a rich man on earth is not guaranteed a greater place in the kingdom more than a poor man. And if people think that the rich are blessed by God, that's a worldly notion of eternal life. Remember, it was the widow who gave a pittance, was received by God as the one who gave the most. Because she gave all she had. Those who surrender to God with a childlike trust will find advancement in the kingdom and a great reward. But that surrender will involve being, are we willing to relinquish all that this world has provided for the sake of serving Christ? And I think the main lesson that has to be developed in this passage concerns not only just eternal life but, and how to obtain it. It's, it's helpful to note first what does not obtain it. Good works done without surrendering to the will of God. There is a place for good works, of course. We see that. They are actually, good works are actually evidence of a living faith in God, but salvation is by God's grace. And without faith, it's just simply impossible to please God. And Jesus was simply 
Well, he wasn't actually testing the man to see if he was perfect. He was calling to man to follow him with undivided loyalty. And to do what... And if he was to do that, he has to jettison those things that prevented him from following Christ. That's why he went away sad, because he couldn't do it. And the only way to find eternal life is to follow Christ. To believe in him according to his teachings. And to do that calls for us to be humble, not self-righteous. It calls for us to have this undivided loyalty and, and, and serving Christ alone. And for those who don't surrender their lives and come to faith in Christ and follow him, God, or sorry, for those who do surrender their lives and come to faith in Christ and follow him, God gives them eternal life and God will absolutely abundantly bless them. And we're not sure in t- what kind of ways, but we know a blessing there and certainly in the kingdom, if not now as well. That's our story. The practical message to the person who's considering becoming a Christian is clear. And if that's you this morning, you know, completely surrendering your life in substance to Christ. To surrender to Jesus means that, you know, one has to put Jesus first in all things, whether it's our wealth, whether it's our position, our lifestyle, or our family. You know, if it hinders one's loyalty to Christ, then that has to be dealt with radically. That's what Jesus was saying. If a band could come up. Radical discipleship. It's not in my notes, but I feel I need to go here. Because I know that there are people in our community who are weighing whether or not they want to be a part of our internship program that we have laid out coming this fall, 2019. And not only maybe you as a student are considering if you're 18 to 25, that's our range. If you want to be older, you can talk to Jordan Michalski about that. You know, I'm sure you don't care, but we're targeting a group. Somebody take a year out and give it to God. I want to talk to parents and grandparents who have influence over their kids. It's not going to hurt for your kid, your son, your daughter, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew to take a year of their life to service to God, to be built in by the church core discipleship concepts. I challenge you young people, you're getting into grade 12, you're in one, two, three years of university. Do you just need to take a time to step out and to search out the calling of God? doesn't mean you're going to be in ministry full time. I'm not saying that. I don't want that for everybody. But we are all ministers. And sometimes we need that help. Sometimes we need those things that are put in and around us. And I highly encourage that you would consider this, that this would be a topic of family discussions. You know, the radical discipleship Jesus taught does not allow for people to serve two or more things. Their loyalty must be to him first. Are we sold out for Jesus? Do we need some tools to get through this life? You know, salvation by God's grace through faith, and and that faith is a radical commitment to follow Christ as Savior and Lord. I encourage you all, to think about that. For us, 
Jesus is pointing out that we can't be confused with the notions of a world, the current ideas of wealth and prosperity. You know, wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing on a person, and poverty is not necessarily a sign of judgment. And believers cannot evaluate spirituality based on worldly standards, but those rewards will be given by God to people for faithful service and not necessarily for people who had wealth and power here. God's the judge. He is the blesser. He determines what goes where. To please God, we just have to follow Christ wholeheartedly and make doing the will of God a top priority in our life. And if God grants us wealth, as he did with Solomon, that's fine. But if getting wealth overrides our commitment, then there's a problem. If making money or if making a name uh, 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 becoming becomes our primary goals and we're not leaving room for serving Christ, then being a success by the world's standards will mean that we're a, fail, a failure to God and his standards. The theme of God's sovereign grace underlines the whole passage that nobody should ever say, I've been obedient to the Lord and therefore he should bless me this way or that way. Salvation is by grace. Rewards in the life to come are by grace. And all of this is the decision of God alone. This will be the theme of the next section that we jump into next week. And so maybe you're here and you're going, I don't even know what I can do. You know, if that, what Jesus is asking me to do. That's okay. And maybe you're our guest and you just got questions. You're somebody's guest and you got questions about God, Jesus, teaching, whatever. Good. And you're thinking, yeah, I just got some questions. That's okay. Maybe you hear your feeling and you're drowning. That's not okay. I just asked if you want in a few moments, just take out your phone. A number is going to appear at the bottom of the screen. All you need to do is text the word soul to that screen. We will contact you personally. We want to pray with you. It's our pastoral care line. We want to pray with you. We want to answer your questions. We want to guide you. We're not going to creepy stalk you. If you don't respond the first time, we'll do a second time. We do a th three strikes and you're out. Then we don't respond. That's how we go. Because sometimes people respond, but they're afraid for the second one. We're there. We want to be patient. And we just want to be able to help guide you in this journey we call life. And I'll guarantee you that somebody will respond to you in the next 24 hours. Will you stand with me, please? And maybe I just want to be very direct as I spoke this morning. Maybe you're in that choice moment and you just, you need Jesus. You, you're, you can identify with this young guy and you just need Jesus. If that's you, let's bow our heads. And if you want me to pray for you specifically, just put up your hand. Anybody? Yeah. Let's pray. God, you know, we, we wait for you to bring hope and peace, and sometimes we forget that you've already come. You've already broken into our world. You've already shined a great light. You've already sent us the Holy Spirit in order that we may be the body of Christ in the world. Now may we be the peace of Christ in our homes, in our church, in our communities, and the nation. And Father, I thank you for this time that we can talk about what it costs to put you first in our life. You are a God who is good, and you designed us, and you know all things, and you know, you know the difficulties around us. 
And I pray by your power and spirit that you would give us the one thing that we need to do in, in order to focus on our relationship with you. And just like with the young ruler, that you offer us the opportunity to be free from the slavery of materialism, to find true freedom, peace, and joy in God. So now be with us, speak to us, God forgive us, and heal us, and encourage us to be representatives of you to the world around us, I pray in your name. Amen. In ancient times, the one who blessed, extended his hands for a blessing on receiving the blessing, did likewise. I like this one. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, at half-truths and superficial relationships, so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and the exploitation of people, so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain and rejection and starvation and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done and give him glory. And the blessing of God who creates and who redeems and who sanctifies be upon you and all you love and pray for this day and forevermore. Now go and live the church soul sanctuary and give somebody a fist pump before you go out. Amen.